0: We do want to get into God's word here. And I want to start by uh, directing your attention to the screen. I want you to look at this uh, taken from dictionary.com uh, definition of the church. And I want you to look at that definition of the church, four different definitions there. And can, can you see how wrong it is? You see, I mean, looking at it, can you see the problem that dictionary.com has it? wrong. It's so messed up. You can see it, can't you? Can you see it? Can you see where it's messed up? The church is not first a building for public Christian worship. The church is not something you come to. It's something you belong to. I mean, you didn't come to church. Maybe you even said that this morning. You didn't come to church. We didn't go to church. You are the church. 7 George Street, which is actually my favorite designation for this place. I don't say I'm going to church. I say I'm going to 7 George Street. I just talk about the address. 7 George Street is not the church. It's a building. It's a property that the church uses. It's so important for us to lock this down that that we are the church. The people are the church. The living, breathing body of Christ with Jesus himself as the head. Amen? That's the church. Now, we wouldn't expect dictionary.com to get the theology straight, but I would expect that we would get the theology of the church Straight, And so as we look at our passage today, we're going to resume our study in the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 4, the last a little section of that chapter. And we're going to see another summary statement. This is the second one. A second summary statement about the church in Jerusalem. Which, by the way, the church in Jerusalem didn't own a building. I just thought that was interesting. They didn't own a building. And Luke again pauses the action here to review where the church is at and what the church... Is it was happening in the church, and it's a good thing for a church to do, to pause, to take a time out, to take stock, to evaluate, and to make sure that the church is as great as it should be. That's the key word today. As great as the church can be, as great as it can possibly be, and that word we're going to see in our passage a couple of times today. And for you and I, as we think about this, and we think about the church, and as we see this evaluation going on, this is a call to personally embody, every one of us personally embodying what the church is supposed to be. Because if you're a follower of Christ, if you're a Christian, then you're part of this. And it does mean certain things. There are implications for us as individuals. And God must dictate the terms of our engagement in the church. We don't get to decide that. We think we do. That somehow we can determine our own involvement and engagement in the church when in fact God himself has told us what our engagement ought to be. And so we need to hear this for the implications that it has on us here this morning. So let me read the passage for us, I'll pray. And then we're going to look at uh, being a part of a great God's great family called the church. This is Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 32 through to the end of the chapter. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them for All right, let's bow our heads and pray. Father, your word is living. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. And it discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And God, our prayer right now is as we get your word open, that it would do just that. It would pierce. the division of our soul and spirit, that it would reveal to us, Father, what needs to change in our lives, and that as a result of being here today, Father, we would more fully reflect the image of Jesus Christ in each of our lives and in, in, in the life of this church. So, Father, meet with us and teach us now through your Holy Spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen? All right. When you're part of God's, uh, when you're part of a great God's great family, here's what we're looking at now first, uh, you experience great commonality. You experience great commonality. Verse 32 said this, look at it again. Now, the full number, the full number of those who believed. Now, notice it's the full number who are being described by Luke here. No exceptions. Every single person who is a believer, who is part of the church in Jerusalem at this time, this is referring to all of them, every single one, no exceptions. Full is full. And and they're described here as having, this is remarkable, one heart and soul. Every single member of this church had the same heart and the same soul. They were one in that. And that combo of heart and soul, just so we understand it, the first time we see that is back in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 5. It's part of the Shema, which the Jewish people recite daily. And it says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And soul could also mean mind, by the way. And so really what it's saying is your heart, your mind, your soul, your body, your might, every part of who you are, Deuteronomy 6, 5 says. Every part of who you are should love God. So this is like an all-in thing. Whenever you see these words together, heart and soul, it's really saying every single part of who you are should be engaged in this thing. The entire being of the person or the entire group together should be engaged fully. So really what Luke is writing here is he's saying the full number of believers were fully engaged heart and soul in being one. They had everything in common, Luke writes. Now that's crazy to think about. I mean, if you've been involved in church for any length of time, and you've rubbed shoulders with other Christians, and you've been in small groups and on ministry teams, and and in worship and in relationship with people, then you understand how absolutely Mind-boggling it is to think that there was a church at one time that in full measure with every believer was of the same heart and soul, that they were one. How incredible is that to even think about, to fathom? Could that even be possible, that a church would have no naysayers? Is it possible to have a church with no naysayers? Some of you here right now are naysaying, saying, I don't think that's possible. (laughs) And my point is made no naysayers, nobody playing the part, I can't even believe people do this, nobody playing the part of devil's advocate, a church with no disgruntled members. I mean, what happened to the church? We know what the church is like today. So what happened to the church? I'm not talking necessarily about this church in particular, but Capital C Church, the greater church around the world, that's what I'm talking about right now. What happened to the church that we have so many people upset at this or that? Why all the conflict? Why all the division? Why all the splits that have happened in churches and denominations? This church, One heart and soul. Everything in common. I feel like we just want to stay in this moment right now and try to wrap our minds around it and just enjoy what that might be like. You say, well, maybe it was just a small church. I've known churches of 20 that have split. It's not just because like, there's 20 or 25 people or 50 people in church, somehow we can get them all in a room and get them all to agree with you. If you have two people together, they can disagree. And in fact, the church of Jerusalem, according to Acts chapter 2, was already 3,000 members strong. By chapter 5, we find out there's over 5,000 members. We're in chapter 4, so I'm going to assume there's 4,000 members at this point. This is a mega church. The very first church that's ever planted becomes a mega church. And not only is it a mega church, but because it was birthed on the day of Pentecost, all these pilgrims were in Jerusalem from all the other parts of the Roman world. And so, I mean, there were people with different skin colors and different ethnic backgrounds and different cultural traditions and people spoke different languages and they'd all come together. Barnabas, for example, he's from Cyprus and he's here. And so this first church, all these different people, this is now a multi-ethnic megachurch in the city of Jerusalem. One heart and soul having everything in common. It's mind-blowing to think about that this could really happen in this way. And so, what happened? I mean, why all these years later is, is, is it so far off the rails? Do you want to know the answer? I ask questions, you answer them. <laughs> I know I was away for three weeks, but my name is Todd. I <laughs> preach pretty regularly here on Sundays. Do you want to know the answer? Yeah. I thought so. What happened? People happened. People happened. That's what happened. Pride happened. Selfishness happened. In a word, sin happened in the church. So a lot of the time, the church doesn't look very one. It doesn't look like it has the same heart and the same soul. And I really think we could do with some clarity on this whole matter. And understand what oneness in the church really looks like. And in fact, we want to look at that by by just kind of with two very quick points, say what what oneness in the church is not, and you might write these down. What oneness in the church is not, first of all, it is not the absence of conflict and strife. It is not that. Anytime you get people together, you're going to have conflict and strife. True? True. Some of you are in denial about that, but that's fine. Anytime we get people together, there's going to be conflict and strife. We're still going to have issues crop up. But as Christians, we're going to deal with those issues post-haste. Right away, we're going to get at it. And we're going to deal with those issues, in fact, in a way that honors the Lord. We're going to deal with those issues in a way that is grounded in the scriptures. We're going to deal with those issues in a way that is governed by the law of love. We're going to deal with those issues in a way that is striving for peace with everyone. And I'd love to unpack all of that, and that would be super helpful. But as we move along in the book of Acts, we're going to see so many times where there's actual conflict. And we're going to come back to this question again, because it doesn't actually take long for things to go off the rails in this very first multi-ethnic megachurch in the city of Jerusalem. In fact... um, Next Sunday, in Acts chapter 5, in contrast to what we see Barnabas do here, we see conflict in the church. In chapter six, there's a whole issue between widows and there's a whole ethnic thing that happens between Greek speaking widows and, and Hebrew speaking widows and who's caring for them. And, and then you get all the way to Acts chapter 15. And there's a whole thing about now they got all these converts coming out of the Gentiles, the Greek speaking people, and, and, and there's conflict with them and whether they should be following some of the uh, Jewish laws, and, and so there's a whole council called, and there's arguments made, and discussions that are had, because there's so much tension about it. By the end of Acts chapter 15, in fact, two of the most prominent leaders, probably the two most prominent leaders in the, in the early church after uh, Acts 13 are Barnabas and Paul, and they had been on a missionary journey together. They were for each other. They were friends, and they split, and, and the scriptures tell us that a sharp disagreement came between those two leaders. And in fact, it's a sharp disagreement that in the scriptures, even though the scriptures speak so well of both men, that it was never reconciled for us. And so this is normal. We have to handle it in a way that honors the Lord. The the church had conflict relationally, and we need to deal with these things in a way that honors Jesus Christ. And so that's the first one, okay? What Uh, What oneness in the church is not, it's not the absence of conflict and strife. Those things are still going to happen. Secondly, it is not that we have to agree on all points of all things. Okay, it is not that as Christians, we have to agree on all points on all things. We certainly agree on the core aspects of our faith or what we believe. We believe the scriptures are inspired by God. We believe that Jesus Christ Uh, is the one and only Son of God. We believe in His redemptive plan, uh, the Father's love for us. We uh, believe in the Holy Spirit and His indwelling. We believe in the coming of Christ. We believe in the mission that Christ has given to us. These are the core doctrines, beliefs that we have, and we share in all of these. And on these points, the word is clear. But on a thousand other matters, we can disagree on how to govern a church, we can disagree on um, worship and music styles, we can disagree on preaching style, on the nature and frequency of communion, or which mode of baptism that we should be using, or what a specific strategy around the mission should be. On all of these things, we can disagree, but as believers, we can still be one on the core issues, and we can still speak well of each other. Amen? Amen still speak well of each other, still pray for one another to be successful at the mission God has entrusted to one another. On all of those things, uh, there can be disagreement and yet oneness. And this well-known phrase, that's always been super helpful, but I feel like we need to remind ourselves of it frequently. Maybe you have heard this before. Uh, Take a look. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. And listen, if we had that in a place where we were constantly reminding ourselves of it, that, that on the core issues of what we believe, there needs to be unity. We need to be one in those things. Heart and soul, wholly committed to the core of what we believe. No matter what the name of the, is on the church, no matter what denomination it is, on those things we agree. But then in all those secondary and tertiary matters, listen, we're pushing those into the realm of liberty. We may not agree on them, but that's fine. When you start talking about all the splits and everything that's happened in the world, I mean you talk about, you know, there's hundreds of different denominations. I think there's hundreds of different kinds of Baptist. Let alone denominations. I think there's a hundred different kinds of Pentecostal. Pentecostals Pentecostals split split like weekly over, you know, the intonation in the speaking of tongues. I mean, I'm just telling you, like everything splits up like that. There's so much diversity on secondary issues or tertiary issues. We're not going to make those the thing. And then, of course, the one thing that covers all of it is love. Because this is the one thing that the world needs to see from us more than anything else. And so we... Uh, We don't have to agree on all points of all things. But the church, as the first church was, had everything. Listen, the phrase was everything in common. Let's just make it this. Had everything of consequence in common. The church had everything of consequence in common, and so should we. All right, that's one down. Here's another. When you're part of a great God's great family, you witness and preach with great power. Verse 33, the first part there says, And with great power, the apostles were given their testimony. Preaching, witnessing, teaching, all of that. To the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that word great in the verse, in in the Greek, the literal word is mega. It's a word that we've taken from Greek and brought it into English. And we use it for something that's like massive and huge. If it's mega, it's bigger than big. And so when he talks here about great power, and with great power, he's really saying, and with mega power, with mega power, this mission is being carried on. Everything that's happening, everything we've already looked at in the book of Acts, the healings and the conversions and the changes in people's lives and the birthing of the church could only be explained by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit working in an extraordinary and supernatural way. And when you think about the expansion of the church and how the gospel message spread out, you realize how much power was required from God, mega power from God to accomplish this. By the end of the, um, uh, the 100s, when you got to around 100s in the 90s, 80, 90s, the Apostle John is the last of the apostles who's alive, who hasn't been martyred. And he writes the book of Revelation, the last book to be written. Within a hundred years of John writing the book of Revelation and then the last of the apostles dying, within a hundred years of that, the gospel is being preached, churches are being established, established in every part of the Roman empire and beyond the Roman empire into places like India and Ethiopia, there's a gospel witness. You think about that, and we we go, well, that's 100 years. And and in fact, it's about 155 years since the resurrection. That took a long time to just kind of spread out there. But when you start to think about how difficult travel was, there was no easy ways to get around. You had to walk everywhere. Maybe you could hitch a ride on a camel. I don't know. That doesn't sound like fun. I mean, maybe you'd have to maybe take a boat, a dangerous boat ride along the Mediterranean. But otherwise you were in caravans and you were walking from one place to another and in all kinds of peril doing that. There was no modern means of transportation. You couldn't get in your car and drive to the next city or country. You couldn't fly there. You couldn't take a good boat there. You couldn't do any of those things. You couldn't communicate by publishing anything because there was no publishing industry. There was no books or pamphlets to hand out. There was no way to communicate over the phone, over radio, over TV or the internet. You couldn't just start a podcast to preach to people in the next country. You had to go there. You had to fulfill the mission yourself. And when you think about that, you see just how remarkable the spread of the, of the gospel really was. And you get a sense of the urgency that the people felt to complete the mission as it was given to them by Jesus. Remember back in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And the remarkable thing about that is, they didn't know where the end of the earth was. I mean, we do. We have all the maps. We know where everything is on planet earth. We know where all the people groups are. We know what all the names of the countries are. We know the demographics of all of those countries. We've got it all. But when Jesus said this, they didn't know where the end of the earth was. I mean, we go on trips. We plan the trips out meticulously. We research the country. We know where we're going to stay. We know how we're going to get around. We know what we're going to do on Tuesday afternoon when we get there. We know we're going to go to the beach or the amusement park or we're going to visit this historic site or we're going to go on a hike or whatever we're going to do. We plan it all out. They couldn't do that. If it's a country where we don't know the language, we just take our phones and we just do Google Translate. They couldn't do that. The end of the earth to them was a mysterious place of darkness. They didn't even know what was there. What language the people spoke, what the culture was like. And yet they went, sensing the urgency of what Jesus had told them to do, into that unknown. Kent Hughes, whose book I'm reading for this series, said, The main reason the church spread as it did was that it is by nature expansive. By the nature of the church and the mission we've been given, it's supposed to grow numerically. It's supposed to go to new places. It's supposed to lead people to Jesus. It's supposed to establish new churches. That's the very nature of the church and the mission. Christ is the only way, and he set the supreme missionary example by giving his life for the world. This produced in his followers a mindset. This is so important. Now catch this. A mindset of outreach, sacrificial service, and growth. Now for sure we see this, leave that quote up there. For sure we see this in the book of Acts as we walk through it. We see those three things. We see this mindset of outreach. I need to go to new cities and preach the gospel. We see sacrificial service, people willing to give up their own lives. In fact, we see martyrdom, people willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of the gospel mission. And growth. There's a lot of places in the Bible that speak about the the quality of our growth and maturing in Christ. But that's not what this is talking about. When we're talking about growth here, we're talking about numerical growth. More Christians, more churches. That's what it's talking about now that's the mindset of these believers in the book of acts but the question for us this morning is is this our mindset are we also as a church am i also as an individual committed to outreach to actually take the gospel to people who haven't heard it yet am i committed to sacrificial service? Am I committed to quantitative growth in our church? Are we providing God with opportunities for Him to show us His mega power as we preach and teach the Word of God and reach out and witness to those who don't know Him? Or... Have we just become comfortable? And do we just prefer that everything was safe? Because after all, isn't that just easier? It's way easier for me. I can play it safe. I like comfort as much as anyone else. But that isn't exactly what God has called us as the followers of Christ to be and to do. There's easier ways to live than to wake up tomorrow morning and be committed in everything that I do. I'm not talking about me as a pastor. I'm talking about you saying this for yourself, waking up tomorrow morning and saying, I'm committed today to the mission of Jesus Christ. I mean, what we're reading here at the end of chapter four comes after there's been an arrest and there's been questioning. Questioning. And then the believers all get together and they pray this prayer in verse 29. Lord, look upon their threats. They told them, don't preach anymore in Jesus' name. And they said, we can't do that. We have to. Lord, look upon their threats is their prayer. Look upon these challenges. Look upon these obstacles to us fulfilling the mission. And grant that your servants would continue to speak your word with all boldness. So tomorrow morning I wake up and I say, today I'm committed to the mission of Jesus Christ. And whatever obstacles, whatever threats, whatever persecution, whatever challenges I face, no matter what that is, God, the thing that I want you to do in me more than anything else is allow me the opportunity to speak your word with boldness. That's the mission. And when we pray that prayer, because prayer and power go together, okay? Prayer and mega power go together. So when I pray that prayer and I put myself out there and I'm committed to the mission, then we give God this incredible opportunity to demonstrate his mega power through us. To do something we could not never imagine he would do. You see, God, that prayer, by the way, just a few verses before our passage today, that prayer unleashed the mega power of God and it shook the room that they were in. I, got, I want God to shake our church. I want God to shake every individual in this church. I want God to shake me. The power, the mega power of his Holy Spirit so that we'll speak the word of God with boldness. And here's why I believe that's so important. First of all, people are outside of the church and they're dying without Christ and they're still in their sin and they're desperate for things. And the world outside these walls, by the way, even as we're talking about being of one heart and soul, the world outside of these walls is so individualistic and preaching that every single person is this isolated little entity and people are lonely and broken and they've bought into the lie that we're individuals in that sense. Beyond that, on the political side of things, we have not in the last several generations seen the polarization that we, that, that we are observing in the world today politically. The right is so far right and the left is so far left and anybody who's left in the middle is being pulled one way or another or being marginalized and silenced. And the world is so polarized that people can't find a place of safety and security. And Christ is saying what we ought to have here are the very things that people are missing out there. We are individuals, but we are also one body. Saved by Christ and made into the body of Christ. Grafted into his family. People want that. Far from the polarization we see politically out there. We come in here and say. We believe a certain set of things. That have been handed to us from God. And we have one heart. And one soul about these things. And as I'm telling you. In a world that is individualistic. And polarized. If we could model these things. That alone would would draw people in. And be attractive to them. Because they're not getting it outside of the gospel. That's. The mission that Christ has given to us. Here's the third. You give and receive great grace. Well, Luke observes, again, latter part of verse 33, and great grace, same word, mega grace, great grace was upon them all. Grace we define all the time as undeserved and um, unmerited, unearned favor from God. It starts with the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. It took mega grace to save us. And none of the practical aspects of being the church, the ministries we run or the way we care for each other and all the ministries we have, all of that, okay, none of the practical aspects of being the church and caring for one another, none of that matters a whiff if we are not first saved. We're not first and foremost a social service agency or a social club or or advocates for justice. We can do all of those things, but that's not the primary mission. We preach Christ and Him crucified. We're pointing people to eternal life and the forgiveness of their sins through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we have no other message. That's the most critical aspect of everything that we do. Having accepted him as our Lord and Savior, having received his abundant mega grace in our lives, we're then made part of his church, the body of Christ. Everything else that we do, all the ministries and the caring for one another, everything else is an evidence of the salvation that we have great grace mega grace was upon them all in saving them saving us then in using them and using us to be dispensers of the great grace of God the mega grace of God to others in both the preaching of the gospel and the caring for needs and demonstrating love for one another and we really should want our church, in every possible way, to be saturated with the mega grace of God. To be defined by it. Known for it. And one very practical way that that plays out, see this fourth, this is the last one, that you and I practice great generosity. The grace of God allows us to be generous people. Now, I want you to look back at verse 33. We didn't go through every aspect of that verse. I want you to look back there for a moment and look at this description. No one said, okay, these are all the members of the church. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, some people look at this and go, well, this sounds like the Bible is preaching communism. But this is not a manifesto for communism because in that failed and godless model, the government takes from you what is yours and redistributes it to everyone else and does so in a way that it's forced. It's forced compliance. But in the church, there's no sense of anyone being forced to do anything. No compelled giving. And no joint ownership. It isn't like every Christian sold everything that they have. And we can see evidence of this throughout the book of Acts. It isn't like every Christian sold everything they had and put it all at the apostles' feet. And then they had this great treasure trove of, of goods and, and and money. And then redistributed. There was none of that going on. Nothing was forced. Luke acknowledged that the things that people owned still belonged to each person. And everyone could and were giving as they were led. So in other words, my house is still my house. My car is still my car. My goods are still my goods. What I have is still mine. But I don't consider them exclusively mine. And in fact, I consider myself more of a steward of those things or a manager of these things. And that all of the things that I own are wholly available To God for the sake of others and for the sake of the mission. All of it. Simply entrusted to me by the Lord. But leveraged for the sake of the church. Leveraged for the sake of the mission. Or as one commentator said, that I have owner's rights. Because I've earned these things, I've received these things, they're mine. I have owner's rights, but as a Christian, I'm not going to exercise my owner's rights. But I'm willing to give up what I have for the sake of others. And I I love that I've seen this modeled so well in our church. And so many of you sacrifice. And I'm talking about real sacrifice. You sacrificed. You gave up things to be able to help us buy this building and renovate it. Some of you have this. You understand it. Many of you give generously towards our hope fund, and that hope fund is used for precisely the kinds of things we're seeing here in the book of Acts, where the money is used to help alleviate the suffering, to help those who are in need. Many of you use your homes. You host ministry in your homes. You use your cars for ministry. Many of you give your time hours and hours every week of your time for the ministry and you give of your financial resources and you give of your talents the abilities that you have and you own all those things you own your homes you own your cars you own the money that's in your bank account you own your time and you own your talents and abilities But you've decided that these things are going to be used for the sake of the kingdom of God. And so rather than exercising your owner's rights and saying, I'm going to keep these things for myself because after all, I've earned them. You're saying, no, no, no. Every bit of it entrusted to me by God, every bit of it able to be leveraged for the sake of the kingdom of God. And so because of that attitude... Notice verse 34 and 35, there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them. They brought the proceeds that was sold. They did it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to people at need. Now, everyone didn't sell everything. Some sold things they had and gave it for the care of others and some didn't. And that was okay. It all came down to the heart and attitude of each person. And then we get this, this specific example of this man named Joseph or Barnabas. Joseph was his real name. Barnabas was the nickname given to him by the apostles, meant son of encouragement, because obviously this guy was an encourager. It's the first we're seeing of Barnabas here, but he, he figures in uh, for a while yet in the Acts story. So this Barnabas, he saw, sold a field that belonged to him. that's all it says. He, he just sold a field that belonged to him. He obviously didn't sell his house or anything else. He sold a field and he brought that money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. And I look at this this selfless act, this generous act on the part of this man, Barnabas, and I'm encouraged by it. But then I also think, like, how could I give the same way Barnabas gave? And I wonder how many of us are just sitting here right now saying, I wish I had the financial capacity, the wherewithal to be as generous as Barnabas was in this moment here. It would be awesome to be able to do that if only, I know, I know, I know, if I win the lottery shouldn't buy lottery tickets. Okay. Just, just skip that. It's just, it's just a tax. Okay. You're not getting anything back. All right. If I win the lottery though, or if I get a windfall or if my inheritance comes in, that's when I'm going to be generous. But every one of us can be generous right now. You don't have to have a lot in order to be generous. In fact, as I was studying through this, I got to thinking about Luke chapter 21. And you remember the scene there, Jesus is in the temple and he's with his followers and they're watching people give their offerings. And they had like this box in the middle of a courtyard and it had like this metal horn on it that people would put their offerings in. And this rich guy came along and he put a great amount into the horn and it clanged and all the coins went in and everybody kind of looked at him. And that guy gave such a great offering. And the man looked at them knowingly and a little nod and a little wink, wink. And everybody knew, what an awesome believer this guy was well then his widow came by and nobody was really paying much attention to her and she took a couple of pennies and she just threw them in and they barely made any noise at all it wasn't very much and Jesus' observation of course was that she had given more than anybody else that day it's astounding she'd given more than anybody else she gave all that she had just two pennies it wasn't worth very much but it was worth everything. The notion that we can't give until we have the capacity to give is eradicated by the widow's offering. Everyone can give generously. Everyone can have the right heart behind this. This isn't just something the wealthy can do, the people who can sell a plot of land and bring it. So I got a list here. Six possible reasons why I'm not as generous as I want to be. Do you want to hear the list? Thank you. Six possible reasons why I'm not as generous as I want to be. Number one, I'm sloppy. No budget. Or I have a budget, but I don't stick to it. Like I've laid it out. I know how much I need to pay in my bills. I know how much I have coming in and how much we want to save. And I know all of that. But then, you know... I have good intentions in January, I have the budget but by February, I'm not following it. That's just sloppiness. And the reality is if we're not tracking where we're spending, we're not going to know what we're spending the money on, and maybe we don't want to track it because we don't want to find out how much we're actually spending at restaurants, or how much clothing costs us, or why are we driving this car and not a cheaper car? Or why do we live in this house and have this mortgage payment and not a different mortgage payment that would be more reasonable? And that's what a budget does for us. But some of us don't want that. But unless we do that, unless we know, unless we're tracking it and really understanding where our priorities are in spending, we're not going to be able to be as generous as we want to be. And that really leads us into number two, spending priorities. Our lifestyle is out of whack. The budget helps us get there, but then we actually have to do the analysis to see, am I spending money in the right places or not? Thirdly, again, sloppiness can lead to too much debt. I'm not talking about your mortgage. If you have a reasonable mortgage and it tucks in under the right percentages of what you're bringing in, that's fine. That's how we buy houses. But if you have a ton of consumer debt, That's a problem. If you have money on credit cards, if you have a line of credit. And listen, we've been spoiled for 20 years in Canada with low interest rates, and we've been lulled into this place of thinking that it's always going to be that way, and the day of reckoning is coming, Canada. And if you're carrying a ton of debt, it will crush you someday. And all of that debt and servicing that debt and the interest that you're paying, listen, for our purposes here, that's keeping you from being able to be generous. Four. Let's just admit, some of us are greedy and self-centered. My money, I'm spending it on me. I mean, if I give money to the Hope Fund, I don't even know who those people are that they're helping. Maybe they don't even deserve it. Why would I give more money to the church? Why would, I, why would I push my money out when I can't fully control where it goes? And if it's not being spent on me, I'm not even sure I want to do it. I'm not saying all of these apply to everybody here, okay? You're going to pick through these and decide which ones are you. Fifth, I don't mean this in a, in a rude way, but you're ignorant of what the Bible says about giving, Maybe you're like a newer believer and you don't even realize that the Bible actually speaks about all of this. That it teaches us and that part of being a disciple of Christ is that we actually handle our money in a responsible way. Maybe you don't even realize that. A few years ago I did, I think it was a four-part series on money called Jesus. It was called Jesus on Money. And we went through all the scripture passages that deal with finances, and it goes through a lot of these principles. And if if you're just ignorant, you don't know, you need to be taught about money issues, go to that series. It's linked in the sermon notes at hbc.info. And you can just watch that series, and it's going to help you get to a better place. And then number six, this just makes sense. No heart for others or for the mission. And that's a possible reason why you're not as generous as you may think you want to be. Well, you can do what you want with all of those those things, but here's the basic principles. Spend less than you make, save for short and long-term goals, eliminate all consumer debt, and when you do those things, you're going to be freed up to be more generous. And that, listen, that's where the joy is. The three players, the three characters in this little story of Barnabas bringing the offering— when you think about that, you have the apostles who receive the offering, you have the people who are going to be helped by the offering, and you have Barnabas giving the offering. And I'm telling you, the people being helped, they're super happy that they're being helped. The apostles are happy to receive the offering, but no one's more joyful than Barnabas. In the moment he gave that money for the land over, he was richer than he was before. And he knew it. In fact, I love this verse, these two verses from Proverbs chapter 11. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. I mean, that doesn't even need any explanation. Give and God will bless you. God will pour it out in your life in ways that you couldn't even imagine. Christians ought to be practicing great mega generosity. All right, that's the fourth. Let's, let me just wrap this up. In light of what we've heard, would you describe your engagement in the life of the church as the key word here was great. Would you describe your engagement in the life as mega? I'm mega involved. I'm mega engaged in the life of the church. Now this is a word, as we've already hinted at, that denotes Quantity. Not the quality of our engagement, but the quantity of our engagement. Mega commonality, lots of commonality, mega power, mega grace, mega generosity. So how are you doing in the quantity aspects of your faith? Because if you say you love Jesus, you say you're saved, you say you're a true Christian, why would you not also love his church, the body of Christ, and fully engaged in the life of the church? I mean, what other priorities in your life could possibly be more important than this? The very thing that's setting the stage for our eternity with Christ. And so what I did is I put together this little assessment. And you're going to ask yourself, this is just for you and God to work through, okay? You're going to ask yourself where you are on the spectrum. This great engagement, this mega engagement assessment. I attend Sunday worship. The good news is you're here today, so none of you will have to score zero. Okay? Okay? Because zero is never. I never go to Sunday worship. I'm here today. Whew, God, at least one. But maybe it's very rarely or rarely or occasionally or frequently or always. And always isn't like 52 weeks because we could say I always go to church. I'm always part of the church um, on weekends. But, um, but I do have some vacation time in there. I would say I always go to church. Okay, that I'm always a part of this. But I do have some vacation time. that I So that would be a five. I serve on a ministry team. I have a place in the church where I serve. Never. I'm not serving anywhere. Very rarely, rarely, occasionally, frequently, or always. Small group. I participate in a small group. If you're not in a small group, you're not assigned to one, you're not part of one, you're not engaged in one, that's a zero. But if, you, if you're signed up for one, because I know this happens. Sometimes people sign up for a small group and then show up like every other month. We're not giving yourself a five for being in a small group, in a small group. That's like a very rarely or a rarely, that's a one or a two, occasionally, frequently, whatever it is for you. And then I give a generous offering, and I put the word generous in there because that's what we're talking about here, and Christians give generously. It is one of the characteristics of our giving. So it isn't just I flipped God a 20 today. You're just tipping God, okay? Okay. This, this, is, this is like I'm engaged in giving in a way that makes an impact, okay? It's a generous offering, proportionate to my income and what I have. But um, if you never do that, that's a zero. If very rarely, rarely, occasionally, frequently, or you always do that, give yourself a five. Now, this is just between you and God, I said. And again, I'm just going to say the caution. Well, quantity... We're talking quantity. Mega engagement is not the only measure. It is indeed a measure, and it's right here in the Scriptures. And to the extent that you're actually committed to being here and being engaged, then you'll grow qualitatively because you're just giving God the opportunity. If you're not here on a Sunday, you're not hearing the message, you're not giving God that, that, that opportunity to actually grow you in the quality of your walk with Christ. So the quantity relates to the quality of our walk with him your walk your spouse your family all of it and so evaluate yourself on this basis and let's see how that helps us to uh, be engaged in a church that is of one heart and soul amen amen all right let me pray for us and then the worship team is going to come and lead us Father, thank you again for your um, grace and mercy toward us and uh, for all that are in this room, Father, who have genuinely received the forgiveness of sin and who love you. Father, we're grateful for that grace that has brought us into your family. And, Father, um, huge responsibility for us uh, to be living out what we see in your word and not just doing it as individuals but doing it collectively together as a church. So, Father, I pray that you would make this church everything that it could possibly be. That it would, in the right sense of the word, be a great church. Fully engaged in the ministry and the mission that you've given to us in this world. Father, that you would grow us. That we would see your hand moving to bring more people in through our efforts. Through our testimony, our preaching, our proclamation of the gospel. God, you would give us the opportunity to start new services and to plant new churches. And that in all these ways, we would be fulfilling that mission that you gave us until we reach the end of the earth and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. these things we pray in his name. Amen.